What you are about to hear is not 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 a podcast. <laughs> this is a global conversation recorded live in real time with real people, journalists, business leaders, academics, politicians. I think the term is a deep state. Oh dear. Investors, experts, diplomats, citizens coming together from around the world to share their views and ask our guests the questions. If you would like to join this conversation or hear our incredible library of past conversations, please visit our website, pm101.club, and join the fastest growing conscious community on the free internet. Thanks for being here. Enjoy, 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 enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Politics and Media 101. My name is Jeff, and in the past four months, my friend Justin Higgins and I and our friends have convened hundreds of conversations, sometimes more than once per day, with up to 30,000 live listeners and participants. And our goals for these conversations are actually pretty simple, to discuss issues that are important to us and that we think are important to the world, but that are difficult to discuss because of how it can feel, how heated our politics have become, and other reasons. We agree to disagree when we must, but above all, we keep things civil. Today, for the first time ever, we're very, very excited to release a recorded portion of one of these conversations, an interview and audience Q&A that we had with Secretary Leon Panetta. For anyone who's not familiar with Secretary Panetta, for more than 50 years, he's dedicated his life to solving America's most pressing problems. He's worked at the highest levels of government for both Republicans and Democrats to do what he believes is right. We felt lucky to have a chance to speak with him. We had about 20,000 live listeners with great audience questions, and we hope you enjoy it. As always, if you like what you hear, if you want to join us for live discussions almost every day of the week, or if you have suggestions for who you think we should bring on in the future, go to our website, pm101.club, where you can find all of that and more. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Secretary Panetta, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and uh, my best to both of you, and uh, thank you for hosting this. Uh, I think it's a, it's a good way to try to, uh, to deal with the challenges facing our country uh, without, uh, without getting into the ugliness that uh, now dominates politics in America. Well, that's our hopes. Um, so we're going to get, I mean, I kind of got to explain your, your career to everybody. You were you went to law school then you were uh, a member of our armed forces and then after that you went right into government service working you know as a legislative assistant then you found yourself as an elected member of congress after that you were a chief of staff to a united states president bill clinton then you were also the director of the office of management and budget which for everybody is really important for controlling how the government spends money and then you found yourself as the for- director of the CIA and also Secretary of Defense. Uh, you have a public service record that would make George Washington jealous. Why did you decide to ultimately go into government and stay in government? Well, you know, it, it uh, in many ways, it goes back to... Uh, my heritage. Uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the son of Italian immigrants. Uh, and uh, like millions of others, uh, they came to this country in the early 30s uh, 
with not much money, not not much language ability, and uh, not many skills. Uh, and I I remember asking my dad why did he come all of that distance uh, to this country. Uh, and although they came from a poor area in Italy, they did have the comfort of family and friends. Why why would you leave all of that to come to this country? And I never forgot my dad's response, which was, uh, because your mother and I believed we could give our children a better life in this country. Uh, and I, I think that really is the American dream, uh, which is to try to give your children a, a better life uh, and try to enjoy what the opportunity that America provides. Uh, no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter where we come from, the opportunity to be able to be part of our democracy. So part of the reason I got into public life was because of my parents, uh, the success that they enjoyed uh, and the ability to get uh, my brother and I, uh, the first in our family to go to college and law school, uh, getting get a good education. Uh, they stressed that we owed something back to this country because of what it gave them. Uh, secondly, the, those two years in the Army, uh, I learned a great deal about duty to country. Uh, and uh, those those were the days when, uh, when there was a draft and you got a real sense of people from every part of the country who had to come together with all of their, their fears, their hates, their prejudices, and somehow they knew that we had to work together as a team uh, in order to achieve a mission. Uh, that that really left a, a real mark uh, in terms of my faith in how democracy can really function and work. And then lastly, a, a young president who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, all of all of that really encouraged me to try to get involved uh, in public service. And um, I I've really had tremendous opportunities. You you described a lot of those, uh, but I I really felt it was important to try to give back to this country uh, that uh, did so much for my parents and for others who have uh, enjoyed the opportunity America is all about. Well, thank you for your service. That is a fantastic answer. I want to go over to my co-moderator here, Jeff, for the next question about your time in government. Yes, sir. Thank you again for being here. Uh, I told Justin earlier, if my Italian-American grandparents could see me, they'd be very proud. Um, so when you're in the situation room and you're handling major situations such as the bin Laden raid or any of the other things that come up, what are the emotions like? How does it feel to be there uh, for you and, and for your colleagues who are handling decisions at that high of a level? Well, you know, again, I, I, I really want to uh, stress the fact that, uh, uh, you know, at, as the son of immigrants, uh, being able to, you know, to really get these tremendous opportunities that I've had, uh, I've, I've never felt that what America is all about uh, is what really has inspired me uh, for, for the work that I've done. And I remember walking over to the Capitol, uh, you, you, both of you have worked in the Capitol, 
I remember walking over to the Capitol when it was lit up at night uh, and just simply being awestruck that, um, you know, what my parents would say if they saw me walking to the Capitol to cast a vote uh, as a member of Congress. And I felt the same way at the White House. Uh, and I never, lo- I never lost that sense of awe uh, of being in very special places uh, and having the ability to work on some really important issues. And uh, when you're in the National Security Council uh, and you're debating issues of war and peace uh, and trying to decide what the best course is to recommend to the president, uh, because that's really what the National Security Council is all about. Uh, we're not we're not the president. We are really those that provide the best advice we can to the president of the United States, who ultimately has to make, uh, hopefully, the right decision uh, in terms of trying to protect our national security. Uh, and you mentioned the bin Laden raid, uh, which is a really good example of that process. I mean, uh, the bin Laden raid uh, was one where we did not have uh, total uh, intelligence in terms of the identity of bin Laden. We never had 100% information that he actually was there. We had some pretty good intelligence. We pieced together a lot of uh, uh of evidence that uh, seemed to indicate that there was a good chance that he was there. But we never had 100% uh, knowledge of that. Uh, secondly, uh, we had decided on uh, conducting a commando raid, sending two teams of SEALs uh, into Pakistan. The, uh, the compound where bin Laden was located was in a place called Abbottabad in Pakistan. Uh, and the raid would have the SEAL teams going on helicopters, flying 150 miles into Pakistan at night, uh, getting over the compound, rappelling down, uh, going into uh, the compound, uh, and getting hopefully getting bin Laden. Uh, and so when it came to a critical meeting when the, where the president kind of turned to everybody around that table and said, what do you think? And that's exactly what happened. Uh, we had we had briefed on the intelligence. Uh, Bill McRaven, who was head of special forces, had kind of briefed on what the uh, commandos, where they were located and what that mission was going to look like. Uh, but then it, the president kind of sat back and said, what do you think? And went around the table. And uh, there were a lot of different views about uh, whether we should go or not go. Uh, some were concerned. Uh some remembered back, I think Bob Gates, uh, who was the Secretary of Defense, remembered when the helicopters went down uh, during the Carter administration in an effort to go after our hostages uh, in Iran. Uh, those helicopters went down and that mission turned into a disaster very quickly. And uh, Gates kind of reminded everybody uh, of what could happen and what could go wrong. Uh, and others thought we should get more intelligence and others suggested that, you know, uh, we just had to wait a little more uh, before we did it. And I remember when the president asked me, I said, Mr. President, I've had an old formula I used when I was a congressman on Capitol Hill, when I faced a tough decision, which was to pretend that I was talking to an average citizen in my district uh, and saying, if you knew what I knew about this issue, what would you do? And if I told the average citizen in my district that we had the best evidence on the location of bin Laden since Tora Bora, 
I think that citizen would say, we have to conduct this mission. Uh, and that's what I'm recommending to you, Mr. President. Uh, and I think we would regret it if we didn't do it. President didn't make a decision at that point. He kind of listened every, to everybody. But the next morning I was at the CIA, got a phone call from the president, uh, or actually it was uh, his national security advisor, Tom Donlan, who said the president's made the decision to go. Uh, it's a That's a tough decision for the president to make. There's a lot of risks involved, but he made a very difficult decision and it proved to be the right decision. When you're making, when you're a secretary of defense or CIA director or chief of staff for the White House, can you walk us through an instance where you had a prior position on an issue and then a staff member provided you with maybe a briefing or new information that completely changed your mind and how you essentially went from believing in one thing and then evolving your thoughts, evolving your position to take an opposing view. Can you walk us through an example of that and, and what goes through your mind in that process? Well, there, there's a, a lot of those moments, uh, believe it or not, uh, as you're going through some very complex issues uh, and trying to make decisions. I guess, uh, and the one that uh, just comes to mind at this point is that uh, when I was Secretary of Defense, uh, we had uh, we had a, a, another successful rescue mission uh, in which we were going after a woman who had been captured by a terrorist group. Uh, and uh, we were concerned that her life might be really be in danger. Uh, and we were able to really put together a very effective operation uh, to be able to go in again at night uh, and uh, move into where she was located, uh, be able to uh, be able to take her from her uh, her captors uh, and be able to get her out. And uh, it was carefully planned, and we we did it, uh, and and it was successful. We we but we had another uh, effort to go after somebody who was uh, I think uh, at, at that point located or or was captured, but was on a ship. Uh, in the, uh, I think it was near Somalia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and at that point, you know, they, they had kind of worked out the, the operation. And for me, it, it initially looked like another go. And then as we continued to look at the operation and the risks that were involved and the ability to be able to go in and to get out uh, with a minimum loss of life, uh, there were a lot of concerns about uh, uh, where where the prisoner was located, whether we would be successful at being able to get to the ship, uh, and whether or not uh, you know uh, we would have to abort the mission at some point. And when I looked at it, and remember going around the room uh, at the Pentagon uh, and asking the question, I mean, there were a lot of different views. Uh, and some were, had some real concerns. But in the end, uh, I thought because there were so many questions, uh, I thought it was risky. And so we had to present it to the president. Uh, and we did. I had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, I had uh, the individuals who would be involved with the operation who summarized it for the president. Uh, 
And the president, too, had the inclination that uh, maybe it was worth the risk. Uh, but then I, I started going over all of the potential problems that might be involved with the operation uh, and, uh, you know, laying out what uh, with what many of the commanders themselves had pointed out as uh, some serious risks. And I said, you know, Mr. President, I know we've done some great missions uh you know, that have been successful. But this is one where I just think there's one too many questions as to whether or not we should go. And to the president's credit, uh, he said, I think you may be right. Uh, and uh, we were able to back away. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I think you, you really do have to keep an open mind in these situations uh, because you do get uh, new information. You do get other approaches that look at the operation from different perspectives. And you've really got to consider every possible consequence when you're conducting that kind of operation uh, in order to make sure that you've covered yourself. I, I mentioned the bin Laden raid. Uh, it was, you know, I think we were a couple of weeks from the operation and the suggestion was made that we should have backup helicopters. Uh, the president thought it was important uh, and uh, McRaven thought it was important. And we were able to pre-locate uh, helicopters, two Chinook hel helicopters uh, in, F uh, in Pakistan. When one of the helicopters in the mission uh, came down with its tail up on, on a wall, uh, I remember saying to McRaven, uh, what the hell's going on? And Bill McRaven didn't miss a beat. He said, we're calling in the backup helicopters. They're coming in. We're going to breach through the walls. We're going to continue with the mission. So because we took the time to look at every possible consequence, uh, we were able to ensure that that mission was successful. So it's, uh, you know, those are important responsibilities. But uh, in the end, uh, that's that's what the job is all about, is really being able to present the honest truth to the president, who ultimately then has to make the final decision. Secretary Panetta, now let's get into the meat and potatoes. Uh, based on your career in service, based on your work right now at the Panetta Institute, studying these issues, could you give us, in look into your crystal ball, dig into that bag, pull it out, and maybe point to a few of the major issues that is facing the United States and could be a challenge to us as a country regarding our international standing in the uh, international arena? Well, look, uh, I'm, I'm a believer that the United States has to be a world leader. Uh, I think that's a role that we have embraced since World War II. Uh, and being a world leader uh, is in large measure dependent on our values and who we are as a country. Uh, as uh, the world's greatest democracy. Uh, but as a world leader, we have built alliances with other countries to try to make sure that we are working together to try to confront the challenges to national security. Uh, and so I, I believe that's an important role for the United States. I think, uh, unfortunately, I think uh, over the last four years, there was an attitude that somehow we ought to break away from our responsibilities in the rest of the world and just focus on our own country. Uh, and we tried that in the 1930s uh, 
Isolationists basically argued that the oceans would protect us against uh, uh, Hitler, Nazism, Mussolini, and fascism, that uh, we shouldn't pay a lot of attention to them. But uh, we came to realize that uh, our security was truly dependent uh, on our ability to deal with these kinds of challenges. Otherwise, it would truly undermine our own national security. So I think it's important for America to be a leader. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that the president went abroad last week to kind of make clear that America is back uh, and reinforced our alliances with Great Britain, with the G7, with uh, NATO, with the European Union and others. It's important to stress those alliances because we're living in a world in which there are a number of flashpoints, probably more flashpoints than I've seen since World War II. Uh, we're obviously uh, dealing with a uh, an empowered China, uh, which is making clear that it wants to become the number one power in the world. Uh, we're concerned about what they're doing in militarizing the South China Sea. We're concerned about their threats to the Taiwan area. Uh, we're concerned about how they're treating the Uyghurs uh, and the human rights violations going on. Uh, at the same time, you know, we know we have we have an economic relationship and that we, we have to have a dialogue with them. Uh, we have Russia, which is uh, really in a whole new chapter of the Cold War. And, and by the way, I think both Russia and China uh, have have perceived weakness on the part of the United States in the last few years and taken advantage of it. I think that's what China's doing, and that's what Putin's doing, going into the Ukraine, going into the Crimea, going into Syria, going into Libya, uh, interfering with our election institutions, cyber attacks on our own country. Uh, yeah, you know, Russia is truly in a new stage of the Cold War. Add to that North Korea, uh, and the weapons they have, they have, a, they have atomic bombs, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, they have the capability of putting it on missiles uh, and attacking the United States as well as other countries. Uh, Iran remains a threat to the stability of the Middle East, uh, not only because of their potential to develop a nuclear weapon, but also because of their missiles and because of their support for terrorism in that part of the world. We still have to worry about terrorism, uh, even though, you know, we've tried to confront ISIS and confront Al-Qaeda. Uh, the reality is that terrorists still are organizing to attack our country. Uh, we're concerned about failed states in the Middle East and the fact that that provides uh, a whole new area for terrorism to breed. Uh, and I'm very concerned about cyber attacks. I think cyber attacks are the battlefield of the future. Uh, and we see that happening. I, I say the battlefield of the future, it's happening as we speak. Uh, cyber attacks that go after our critical infrastructure, the ransomware attacks have uh, really made us aware of how vulnerable we are uh, to uh, this kind of cyber attacks. So, you know, when you look at all of those areas, it really is going to demand the United States not only to build alliances, whether it's NATO whether it's in the Pacific, whether it's in Latin and Central America, whether it's in Africa. But we're also going to have to develop a defense system that is flexible, that's agile, that can be quickly deployed to any particular crisis that occurs. 
and we have to be on the cutting edge of technology. We are living in an era where the whole idea of artificial intelligence uh, is something that can really change the way we confront each other. Uh, we have to be ahead of that on technology, uh, whether it's uh, on cyber, whether it's on unmanned systems, whether it's in space. Uh, those are all areas where we have to be a hell of a lot uh, more capable in terms of dealing with the kind of threats that are out there. So that's a quick purview of uh, some of the challenges we face uh, in the foreign area. I might just point out that one of the areas that concerns me, that's not part of those foreign affairs areas that uh, I just mentioned, is our ability to be able to govern in our democracy, which I think is also uh, a real concern. Uh, what we saw happen on January 6th, the fact that a mob could attack the capital of the United States and stop our democracy from functioning, the inability of Democrats and Republicans to be able to work together to deal with the challenges that face our country, to be able to govern. I've often said I've seen Washington at its best and Washington at its worst. Look, I remember Washington when Republicans and Democrats worked together, when we felt it was important, even though we had our political differences, we felt it was extremely important to work together on major issues facing our country. And so landmark legislation was enacted, whether it was in civil rights, on education, on the environment, uh, on, on a number of areas, healthcare. Uh, we did it because we thought it was right for the country. Today, because of this heavy partisanship we've seen and polarization, uh, and we've just seen it happen over the last few days, uh, areas that need to be addressed are somehow in total gridlock. And I have to tell you, that sends a message to the world that our democracy in the United States of America is very fragile. I do want to ask and drill down about how we should look at the rise of the totalitarian and ruthless CCP government, but I have to follow up here. I'd be foolish not to. Do you see any ability for us as a society here in the United States to begin to quell these divisions, come together, act like adults, and actually get things done in Congress and govern responsibly? And if so, uh, what does that path back to normalcy look like? Uh, well, it, it's a question I get a lot uh, these days. Uh, look, I, I think we have to get back to governing our country. I mean, people are elected in our democracy not to go back to Washington just to pound your shoe on the table. Uh, you're elected to go back to govern, to, to, to find solutions to the problems that are facing the American people. Uh, I mentioned uh, the Washington that I was a part of. You know, uh, as a legislative assistant on the Senate side, uh, I worked for a Republican whip, a guy named Tom Keekle, who came out of what I would call the progressive uh, mode of Republicanism that Hiram Johnson established in California, came, you know, 
it brought us Earl Warren, brought us Goody Knight, a number of others. But uh, he was a minority whip, and there were other moderate Republicans, uh, Jacob Javits from New York, uh, you know, uh, people like Hugh Scott from Pennsylvania, uh, George Aiken from Vermont, uh, Mark Hatfield, and they work with with Democrats, leading Democrats, whether it's Hubert Humphrey or Teddy Kennedy or Dick Russell or Sam Irvin, uh, they work together. And that was true when I got elected to Congress. Tip O'Neill was the speaker, uh, a Democrat's Democrat from, from Boston. But he had a great relationship with Bob Michael from Illinois, who was the minority leader. And did they have their political differences? Yes. Did they fight each other in elections? Yes. But when it came to big issues, Facing the country, they work together. They work together. And the result of that, whether it was a Democratic president or a Republican president, was that we were able to pass landmark legislation. I mean, in the Reagan administration, we passed on a bipartisan basis Social Security reform. Imagine, third rail of politics. We did it. We passed tax reform that simplified our tax system on a bipartisan basis. We passed immigration reform. We did budgets. I mean, we, we had the opportunity, despite our political differences, to work together and try to solve these issues. Now, as, as we've seen, these last number of years have become tremendously partisan. Uh, and I, Look, when I was there, governing was good politics, okay? If you governed and you did the right thing, that was good politics. I'm not so sure that people look at the situation today and think that governing is good politics. Confronting one another seems to be the good politics. And when, when you put party and politics ahead of the interests of the country, our democracy is in trouble. Now, there are members that want to get back to governing. Uh, the best news is we've got a group in the House called the Problem Solvers Caucus. I think there are about 25 Democrats, 25 Republicans, new, a lot of them newly elected, who are trying to work together on a bipartisan basis. We have a group of senators who are trying to work together on a bipartisan basis. Uh, it's tough to do, but I sense that they really want to try to move forward uh, and to achieve uh, some of these areas, particularly on infrastructure, that are so critical to our country. I think if they can achieve some of these areas, I think it, it hopefully can ultimately break this terrible mold that we're in where we've got to confront each other. I mean, we're, we're almost in a trench warfare on Capitol Hill where everybody's throwing grenades at one another. Uh, if you fight, you fight for a few inches one way or the other, but you're not, you're not able to end, you know, the terrible partisanship and division that's going on. Somehow we've got to break that. And, you know, I know Joe Biden would love to do that. Uh, he, you know, I've known Joe Biden for 40 years. I think he really is interested in trying to develop that kind of relationship to get back to governing. Uh, I think there are others that want to do it. 
But look, let me just conclude by telling you, I tell the students in my class here at the Panetta Institute that in a democracy, we govern either by leadership or by crisis. If leadership is there and willing to take the risks associated with leadership, and there are risks, but if that is there, we can avoid crisis. But if leadership is not there, then we will govern by crisis. And I think for too long, we have governed by crisis. And there's a price to be paid for that, which is that we lose the trust of the American people in our system of governing. So somehow we have got to get back to understanding that we have a responsibility to govern our democracy, that this is too important to the fate of our country to just kind of look the other way. And I think to some extent, the American people are so tired of this that they've they've lost interest because they've seen this, this division one too many times. We have got to make clear, and the American people are going to have to make clear, that we, we want people who are going to be willing to govern and to put country ahead of politics. That's the only ultimate way we're going to be able to break this gridlock. And we actually, just to put a fine point on the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, Secretary, we've actually had Representative Peter Meyer on, who many would say uh, is a freshman who bravely put country over party in one of his first votes. Uh, So those are the types of voices we agree with that need to be elevated here. My last question before we're going to get into the town hall session where you're going to get audience questions. You mentioned the rise of the CCP government. You mentioned the atrocities, genocide that they're committing at home, at least our U.S. government calls it a genocide. Uh, the They just don't value individual freedoms, civil liberties. They use technology to monitor their citizens. They're putting their billionaires like Jack Ma into prisons and, and just a whole host of other atrocities, including propping up uh, foreign governments through the Belt and Road Initiative that have a similar bent towards totalitarianism. How should we view the United States CCP government uh, competition? What paradigm should we use? And you were also a part of the Obama administration, which was famed in the second term after you had left for making the pivots to Asia. So how should we view the U.S. and CCP government's power struggle? And what should the United States make as the foundation of our attempt to win in this competition? Well, look, uh, you know, we we could uh, that's that's worth uh, probably the full hour just to talk about, you know, the the different approaches there. But I I think, uh, you know, as simply as I can say it, uh, the United States has to deal with both Russia and China from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. Uh, If this is somehow about pretty please, uh, won't you do the right thing? Uh, I have to tell you, it's not gonna work. Uh, And we know that. Uh, And so for Russia, it's very important as the president did to say where the red lines are. That, uh, you know, if, if Russia continues these cyber attacks, if they continue to uh, go after, uh, you know, using these proxy criminal gangs uh, and go after our vital infrastructure, 
that the United States is not going to tolerate that and that we are going to use our own offensive capability to make them pay a price. I think that's an important signal to send to the Russians. They keep playing this game with cyber. They're going to pay a price. Uh, and to make clear that we're going to continue to build strong alliances so that they're not going to be able to simply move into uh, the Ukraine or move into other former Soviet republics without resistance. I think the same thing has got to be done with China. Uh, I think we do need to have a strong presence in the Pacific. Uh, and I think uh, President Obama was right uh, to try to pivot some of our forces uh, to the Pacific uh, and to try to have uh, not just one, but two carriers in the Pacific, along with the forces that we have in Japan, South Korea, and elsewhere, to make very clear to China that we are a Pacific power. Uh, and we are not going to tolerate their ability to somehow uh, militarize these islands in the South China Sea and impede with the freedom of the seas that uh, are protected under international law. So we are not going to allow them to simply uh, cut off the South China Sea uh, as uh, an area that uh, will prohibit the United States uh, from the ability to use our ships. Uh, secondly, that uh, I think we have to send a clear signal on Taiwan, that uh, Taiwan uh, you know, is, uh, uh, is an area that uh, has been able to uh, enjoy a democracy, has been able to advance their economy, uh, and uh, they should make the decision uh, as to the kind of government they have, and not the Chinese. Uh, so we, we, we should have to, we should make very clear to them that there is a line there with regards to Taiwan. Uh, and we have to try to do what we can, obviously, to try to help in Hong Kong as well. Uh, and to make clear that human rights violations uh, will be sanctioned uh, in terms of how they treat the, the Uyghurs. So what I'm saying is you've got to draw some very clear red lines with, uh, with China. Making those lines very clear and then saying that at the same time, we do want to proceed with dialogue, dialogue on trade issues, dialogue hopefully on cyber issues, dialogue with regards to uh, technology, uh, where our countries share so much of the technology that's developing in the 21st century. There are areas where I think we can make some progress. Uh, I remember meeting with President Xi when I was Secretary of Defense, uh, and you know he was very straightforward. He objected to our pivoting uh, our strength to the Pacific. And I said, look, we're a Pacific power, just like you're a Pacific power. And the reality is we do have some common causes in that area, whether it's, uh, it's North Korea, aggression from North Korea, whether it's uh, dealing with uh, the problems of trade, freedom of the seas, whether it's uh, the problems of trying to deal with natural disasters, uh, we have some areas where we can, in fact, work together. And to his credit, he said, that is the best way to promote peace and prosperity in the future. 
and we were able to open up then some important dialogues, uh, particularly in the cyber arena. So I, I think it can be uh, a relationship that can produce uh, some results, but it, it, it will only happen if the United States deals with China from a position of strength, not weakness. Thank you for that. We're going to go to the audience now, folks. This is Politics and Media 101. We do these discussions every single weekday. Uh, and then also on Sundays, we're going to go to our first audience question from Christine, who will be followed up by Greg. Christine, over to you. Thank you. Hi, Secretary Panetta. So I am Taiwanese-American. I've spent my life uh, assuming that the status quo of, you know, um, the Taiwan situation would provide a level of comfort, even though it often doesn't because the, mil the, the threat of military force isn't off the table. Having said that, I've been concerned over the last couple of years, especially the turning point being seeing what's happened in Hong Kong. So would like to get your thoughts, uh, since we have you on what you feel the likelihood or are you concerned about the Taiwan situation escalating beyond that kind of uncomfortable, comfortable status quo we've all kind of uh, accepted over the last, you know, several decades? Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. And uh, I, I really do appreciate uh, your concern uh, with regards to uh, uh, the situation in Taiwan. Uh, particularly after what's happened uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, I, I think that China, as I said, perceived weakness on the part of the United States uh, these last few years. Uh, and as a result, uh, we're very aggressive at trying to extend their influence uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative, with uh, financing, uh, almost every, in every area of the world, uh, trying to extend their di diplomatic uh, force uh, into countries around the world, trying to build economic ties uh, to these countries. Uh, I thought it was a mistake that the United States walked away uh, from our trade treaty with uh, the Asian countries, which I thought would have been uh, a very important signal to, to China uh, in the trade area. Uh, and when we walked away from it, China took advantage of the vacuum that we left. So it's, it's critical, as I said, for the United States to make clear uh, that we are a player uh, in the Pacific. We tend to continue to be a strong player. We continue to advocate the values that uh, we think are important, our democratic values that uh, China does not pay any attention to. Uh, but uh, we believe that ultimately people are entitled to self-govern. They are entitled to make decisions about uh, who their leaders should be uh, and not be dictated to. Uh, those are important points for the United States to stress. Uh, and if we make clear that there are these red lines that we will not allow China to cross, uh, I think China is smart enough to understand, uh, you know, because Look, we all know China is a country that takes the long view. You know, they don't operate on kind of what can they get today? What they look at is, you know, what could they ultimately get in another 20 or 25 years or 30 years? That's the, uh, you know, the, the third kingdom kind of approach 
to looking at issues. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not so sure. I think if the United States doesn't restore its leadership and come on strong, then I do worry that uh, China might think that they could replay the Hong Kong, replay what happened in the Hong Kong in Taiwan uh, without necessarily trying to uh, have a military action take place. I don't think the Chinese are particularly interested uh, in military confrontation. Uh, it's not to say that they, you know, that might not happen, but my sense has always been that China uh, is trying to 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 extend their influence through both economic and diplomatic uh, pressures of one kind or another. Uh, so I think if the United States does send a strong signal uh, on Taiwan, that means that uh, the United States is not going to look the other way uh, and allow China to do whatever it wants with Taiwan. Uh, and I'm glad that we're now providing additional military aid to Taiwan. I'm glad we're trying to work with them economically. Uh, I think those are all important steps. Uh, if we can continue to send those signals, I think China, uh, you know, while they'll, they'll always continue to believe that Taiwan is part of China, uh, that they'll also play the long game rather than trying to suddenly make a quick move on Taiwan. That, that's my guess. Now, you know, it would be nice to, to also keep the pressure on Hong Kong. I, I think it's terrible for those, all of us that have, you know, knew Hong Kong for being a financial center, for, for being a vibrant example, really, of, uh, you know, the ability of individuals to be able to succeed on their own. Uh, Hong Kong was a great example of that. Uh, and why the hell they turned it into this disaster uh, doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. Uh, so I, I think we ought to continue to put pressure on them to allow Hong Kong uh, to be able to play much more of a role, the people of Hong Kong, to play much more of a role in terms of deciding uh, who will govern uh, in their political future. Uh, you know, look, if the United States is going to be a leader in the world, as I said, it is because of our values. And if we are if we are ever to regain respect in the world, we are going to have to consistently argue on behalf of the values that promote human dignity uh, and uh, the ability of humans to be able to govern their future. Uh, we have we've we can't back away from that. We we have got to continue to put pressure on China. And I'll tell you something, you know, even though China, you know, has done very well economically, I think China knows that its fundamental weakness is inside China. And they continue to be worried that if they cannot take the kind of progress and prosperity that they would like to enjoy and really allow everyone to be part of that, uh, that will ultimately undermine the strength of China in the future. Uh, we've got to continue to point that out to them because that is their greatest vulnerability. Thank you for that question, Christine. Uh, folks, this is Politics and Media 101. We have 
the honorable former Secretary of Defense and former a lot of other amazing positions, Leon Panetta is speaking with us, educating us. We're in the audience portion of the Q&A. We just had Christine. Now we're going to go to Greg, and then um, I will figure out who is next. Greg, over to you. Thanks so much, Justin, and, and thanks for joining us, Secretary Panetta. Um, back in the 1950s, uh, we had we were sort of a, just entering the nuclear era, and a new breed of leaders, uh, specifically uh, Henry Kissinger, sort of made their names and made their careers formulating a new doctrine for the nuclear era. And a lot of observers say we're in a similar era uh, today with respect to hybrid warfare. So not just cyber and information warfare, but also with respect to, to, to proxies and drone warfare and, and all these things. Um, and you mentioned the Ukraine. That's certainly a place where we've seen all those elements at play. And some people have described uh, 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 Ukraine as the petri dish of, of the strategies for the, the era to come. If, if you were to articulate uh, a doctrine for the era of hybrid warfare, what would that look like? How do you think that's going to shape our strategy uh, for, uh, uh, for our, our place and propagating our power throughout the world? Well, you, point, you pointed out... Uh a very important issue in terms of uh, the kind of world we're going to have to confront uh, in the 21st century. Uh, and I, I know we, we spend an awful lot of time focused on conventional warfare. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time uh, focused on weaponry uh, for uh, a, a largely conventional type uh, war. Uh, but I really do think that we're going to have to we're going to have to develop a greater capability with regards to dealing with the threat of hybrid warfare. And there are a lot of elements, of course, that are part of hybrid warfare uh, that uh, you know that Russia, in fact, implemented uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, I think China would like to be able to use a lot of those elements as well in order to try to uh, influence what happens, particularly in Southeast Asia, uh, as well as elsewhere. Uh, and I think that other countries in the Western alliance understand that, particularly in the role of cyber, uh, that cyber is going to play a bigger role. Uh, with regards to uh, uh, our defense posture. Uh, I, I think that it's critical that the Pentagon, the Defense Department, has to understand that it is going to have to confront threats on a number of fronts, that Obviously, we need to maintain our nuclear deterrence. Uh, I think we do have to be prepared uh, for the potential of a of a conventional war. Although, it, you know, the likelihood of a conventional war becomes less likely. Uh, I still think that it, it's always possible, and 
so we do need to maintain uh, our fighters uh, and our bombers and our uh, our Navy uh, capability. Uh, but added to that uh, is the ability to be able to to also conduct hybrid war and to use cyber effectively. Uh, and in some ways, uh, our use of special forces and counterterrorism uh, involved kind of the ability to go after key targets uh, and not, you know, not engaging obviously in any kind of broad conventional warfare, but in trying to target leaders uh, and trying to undermine the strength of our opponents uh, by going after uh, individuals. So uh, I would say there is an area involving special forces that continues to be to be stressed, particularly with regards to counterterrorism. But I would also use special forces as part of our hybrid war capability, where we would combine cyber, unmanned systems, drones, uh, combined with proxy forces, in order to be able to undermine uh, stability uh, in, amongst our, our adversaries, uh, and to be able to counter what they may be trying to do uh, against us. Uh, it's going to involve a very different mindset. And, uh, and yet, uh, I really think that the United States, in terms of our defense and, and military capabilities, that we have a lot of the creative and innovative uh, individuals who can come up with approaches that would make the United States capable of being able to develop a hybrid war capability that could be very useful, uh, particularly in dealing with the kind of problems we've seen in the Middle East with failed states in the Middle East, uh, the, the ability to deal with uh, challenges from Russia particularly in its border areas, uh, to be able to counter their hybrid war efforts. Uh, I, I think if, if we are going to remain strong in the 21st century, uh, we simply have to invest in hybrid capability a lot more than we are at the present time. So, um, Secretary Panetta, I just got a message that we have somebody who actually was special forces on stage that wants to ask you a question. Do you have time? I know we're pushing up on that hour. Do you have time for two more questions? Well, sure. Amazing. Okay. So we are going to go to our special forces member, uh, Mr. George Lemure, and then we're going to go to uh, John Gunnison. But George, over to you. Well, hey, thanks, Justin. I appreciate you making some time. And Secretary Panetta, thank you very much. I appreciate your time as well. Um, you know, we're, we're also uh, both graduates of the United States Military Academy, so it's good to uh, be talking to you again, sir. We saw each other briefly at uh, one of your visits to an installation uh, in about, I want to say it was 2010. 
That's probably about right. <laughs> I hope you got one of my coins. <laughs> I didn't, sir. I was, uh, I, was, I was a little bit junior for that. Um, but anyway, to, oh, okay. to, to your last point, you uh, so you you make this this fabulous point that we need to be looking at what warfare looks like in the future. And I mean, you you served in Congress for sixteen years. You were in the the OMB. You served as the uh, the as the uh, the president's chief of staff. So you know the, the the Herculean effort it takes to change the direction to change the direction of policy in Washington. And then certainly as director, and then as the defense secretary. You know these were the battles that you fought with Congress every day. If you had to sketch out on a, on a napkin for a president, what you know what were the, are the top line things that we would need to do or not not even specifying what those things are but what are the what are the major components of an initiative to to change the way that we think about defense um, in line with uh, in line with what is required for us to meet these complex and adaptive threats in the future, whether that's the confluence of information warfare and cyber warfare, along with the use of uh, intelligence and special operations forces, um, or whether that's our ability to adapt to these transformational technologies like artificial intelligence um, light and, and, and the way that those will affect battle spaces uh, relative to the current structure of our of our military, uh, a military built on platforms like aircraft carriers, uh, major combat units like ar- armored divisions. If, if, if you're looking at the future and you've got a, a, a bunch of bright young guys that are in the Pentagon that are that are briefing you, hey, this is what we this is what we've tested out at the, the national training centers. We believe that this stuff will work. Uh, we've got these cap- we've got these capabilities that we can we can put in the queue. How would you sketch that out for a president or for the, you know, the, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee for how we get from where we are to where we need to be in order to fight and win the next generation of America's wars if we have to fight them? Yeah, th- thank you very much. Uh, you're, you're right about uh, the kind of resistance that uh, you get because, uh, look, uh, con- Congress uh, – Having been in the Congress, uh, you know, I know that uh, members are going to try to protect uh, what is important to them. Uh, and whether it's a, uh, a contractor who's uh, building planes or building tanks or building whatever, uh, or it's an installation uh, that they're trying to protect, uh, they're going to do everything necessary to try to maintain that. Uh, and, you know, I can remember... Uh, proposing budgets that involved uh, some force structure reductions, uh, even proposing a, a new background uh, to uh, try to reduce some of the overhead that uh, we have in the military. Uh, and just running into tremendous resistance uh, on being able to change that. Uh, so I, I think it's going to take a president who, who says, I mean, what I would say to that president is, Mr. President, I think what you have to say to the country and to the Congress is that America has to, we, our first responsibility is to protecting our national security interests. Uh, that's what that's what the Defense Department is all about. Uh, I always felt as CIA director or Secretary of Defense, my job 
was to make sure I was protecting the country. Uh, and I think the president has to make clear to the Congress and the country that as commander in chief, his fundamental responsibility is to protect the United States of America in the 21st century. And that in order to do that, we have to be prepared to confront a myriad of threats coming from a number of different directions. We cannot just assume that uh, the main threat is China or Russia uh, or, you know, uh, North Korea or Iran. Uh, it is all of the above. Plus, plus terrorism, plus the ability to try to figure out, you know, uh, what the hell's going to happen in Afghanistan, uh, plus the ability to try to deal with cyber, uh, plus the ability to deal with hybrid war. Uh, it's all of these potential threats that the United States is going to have to confront. And yes, the first step on that is building alliances. I mean, the United States can't do this alone. We've got to we've got to build strong alliances and strengthen those alliances, whether it's NATO, whether it's uh, dealing with the ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia, whether it's building uh, new alliances elsewhere. That has to be an important part of it. Uh, you know, I, I would put that in the category, not just of military relationships, but diplomatic relationships as well. And that lastly, in terms of our ability to deal with that myriad of threats, there are a series of important elements that have to be part of the defense strategy of the 21st century. Number one, that we have to be agile and quickly deployable. We've got to be able to move quickly. Uh, when there is a threat, I mean, you know, the likelihood is, and we've seen it, in the last number of years. Uh, if a threat comes up, we have to be pre prepared to respond as quickly as possible. If we have to deploy forces, if we have to deploy any of our assets, uh, we've got to be prepared to move and move fast. Uh, and uh, that has to be a capability that we really, really work at. Uh, you guys in the special forces understand that better than anybody. Uh, but it has to be, frankly, uh, an element that all of our defense forces are able to respond to quickly uh, so that if we need to move, we move fast. Uh, secondly, I think we do need uh, to sharpen up our force structure a little bit. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not... It, numbers always used to be what our defense was about, about. I don't think it's so much numbers as the quality of force that we have. Uh, and so I think we probably can tighten up uh, a little bit in terms of our force structure uh, in order to try to help on that agility that I talked about. Uh, I think we do have to be prepared to deal with the potential of a two- uh, you know, a two battlefront war, two two battlefront wars that we may have to deal with uh, at one time, uh, confronting, uh, let's say, North Korea 
uh, and at the same time dealing with the Middle East crisis. Uh, we better damn well have the capability to deal with two wars uh, at one time, which means obviously our conventional forces have to be capable uh, of being able to provide uh, the naval support, uh, the Air, air Force uh, uh, and bomber and plane support, uh, as well as the uh, boots on the ground uh, that may be required in that situation. Uh, and I do think that we do have to increase our presence in the Pacific. Uh, we have a large presence, obviously, in South Korea and Japan and elsewhere. But I, I do believe we probably need to deploy two of our carriers uh, to uh, to China to send a very clear signal that uh, we are going to maintain a strong presence in China. That way, it gives us the ability to kind of checkmate China while obviously having to confront uh, threats elsewhere as well. And then lastly, look, we have to invest in the technology of the future. That means we have to invest in unmanned systems, uh, in, uh, in robotics, uh, we have to invest uh, in uh, robots or in uh, uh, drones. We have to invest in cyber technology. Uh, we have to invest in hybrid uh, technologies that can be used in hybrid war. Uh, most important thing we can do is stay on the cutting edge of new technology because make no mistake about it, that's where China's going. Uh, and that's where other countries are going, but particularly China. Uh, what's happening with artificial intelligence these days, uh, and you've seen a little bit of it, but you can you can you can take artificial intelligence and totally control uh, a uh, an area in conflict uh, just by virtue of information and data, and that's what artificial intelligence is really all about. So we have got to stay ahead of that. We've got to be making sure that we are innovative and creative uh, and that we're building the best support system for those that ultimately uh, have to uh, provide our defense. So I guess, you know, again, I would say to the president, Mr. President, stress the importance of maintaining our military power, stress the importance of uh, doing everything necessary to protect our national security, stress the amount of threats that are out there and the different directions they come from, and thirdly, then stress the, the approach that we are going to take to invest in a strong defense strategy for the 21st century that is made up of the elements that I just described. Uh, that, in a very quick summary, would be some of the points I would make to the president. Thank you for that. I'm going to do a quick reset. Here's Politics and Media 101 with former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. Uh, Secretary uh, Stephen told us we actually have you for another 20 minutes, so we're lucky. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so know, I, I, my, I did, like like uh, you guys remember, I rely on staff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I want to go to uh, Mr. John Gunnison, who's probably going to bring us to another part of the world. He is uh, from my part of the world up in the Northeast, uh, in the Boston area. And then we have a guy on stage named Paul, who I also want to uh, get into question. Uh, so, John, over to you. 
Uh, thank you, Secretary Panetta. Thanks so much for being here. I actually met you nine years ago as a Capitol Hill intern, so I'm glad to be able to ask you another question today. That's um, great. I would like to. Uh, yeah, um, I asked you about Pakistan then, but today I would like to ask about your assessment of the U.S. relationship with the Arab Gulf states, uh, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE, where I lived for eight years. Uh, it's a relationship that's been at the core of our regional strategy for decades, but it's come under scrutiny in recent years for many reasons, uh, strain, divergences, fluctuation, but uh, still a large degree of alignment in many regards. And in your service, you witnessed pivotal moments in this complex relationship, especially after the regional events of 2011. So how do you see the future of our relations with the Arab Gulf states? And how do you assess the status of those relations today? Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question, uh, and uh, something that I've, I've I've really worried about a great deal, uh, and and I'll tell you why because uh, because we've seen uh, so many failed states in the Middle East uh, when we went through the Arab Spring, uh, and there really was there really was no kind of one policy to deal with uh, these nations that were kind of falling apart. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there was not much of a strategy on how we were going to provide stability uh, in these countries uh, that were going through the throes of revolution of one kind or another. Uh, and it became a real hit and miss process. Uh, you know, we, we tried to respond to some, we went into Libya and, uh, you know, with uh, with NATO, uh, I think, frankly, uh, conducted a pretty good operation in Libya, but we didn't have good follow up uh, in trying to uh, provide stability uh, in Libya. Uh, Syria was a disaster from the word go. Uh, we really didn't uh, have uh, have any kind of, of, of comprehensive strategy as to how we were going to deal with Syria. Uh, so that became a hit and miss operation as well. Uh, and Yemen, uh, another example of that kind of hit and miss approach. Uh, I always felt, and it, you know, it, it's easier to say than do, as 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 you know, if you have any familiarity uh, with the countries we're talking about. Uh, these, you know, these sometimes uh, are tribal countries that have their own history. Uh, and uh, and it's not always easy to move them in a new direction easily. Uh, and yet, you know, I have I give some credit to uh, the Trump administration for getting uh, the UAE and some of these other countries uh, with the Abrams Accords uh, willing to at least recognize uh, Israel and providing at least an opportunity to begin to have a little bit of a different dynamic. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, that relationship between Arabs and Jews uh, in that part of the world. Uh, let me just tell you what I, I mean, I, actually, Secretary Clinton, when she was uh, Secretary of State, and I, I think, had, had really made an effort to try to take uh, our Arab, moderate Arab coalition partners and try to not only 
build a diplomatic relationship, but a security relationship as well. Uh, and I would, I would say that what the United States ought to make an effort at is to build a Middle East alliance that is made up of the moderate Arab countries that I talked about, or that that you mentioned, uh, uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Bahrain, uh, others. Um, I would include Israel, obviously Egypt, as part of that coalition. And what, what I would do is say that the purpose of that alliance is to address uh, two principal issues. One, obviously, how we deal with Iran. Uh, I think that could be a very strong coalition to try to um, contain Iran uh, in that part of the world. Uh, those, those countries, uh, I, I've worked very closely with those countries uh, in trying to uh, develop uh, our approach to Iran, and they were always very cooperative. So Iran is one. Terrorism is two. Uh, we're continuing to deal with elements of terrorism that threaten to undermine that region, whether it's ISIS or Al-Qaeda, uh, whether it's Boko Haram, whether it's uh, Al-Shabaab. Uh, there are a number of uh, terrorist groups that have metastasized. Uh, and I think are a threat to all of the countries in that region. So having a, a comprehensive approach towards dealing with terrorism would be another focus of that military relationship. And then third, obviously, if we could use that relationship to be able to promote, uh, you know, efforts, diplomatic efforts, to try to achieve some kind of agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, uh, to be able to achieve uh, a peace agreement in that area. If we could bring that coalition together to be able to support an effort uh, to try to bring both Israel and the Palestinians to the table, uh, I think that would be a significant achievement. I think that's possible, okay? I, I really do. I mean, I've dealt enough in the Middle East, uh, and I think that a lot of the leaders in the Middle East understand the importance of being able to have strong coalitions come together in order to provide for their security. But it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of diplomacy, and it's going to take some real efforts by both the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense to make clear that they are there to provide whatever source of help may be necessary in order to make that Middle East alliance that I just talked about really come together and function as a unit. There is no reason why you can't build a, type, a kind of NATO alliance in that region that faces off against these threats I just talked about.
And wouldn't that be a hell of a better way to deal with it than to have this kind of half-ass, hit-and-miss kind of approach in which the Saudis do what they want to do in Yemen, uh, others do what they want to do elsewhere, and you've got chaos reigning uh, in terms of, of the Middle East. So uh, that's, a, that's a big picture. It's a big challenge, but I think it's worth the effort. Thank you for that question, John. We are going to go to, um, actually, Secretary Panetta, we've had over 10,000 people so far come in and out of this discussion. Right now, you have, you're have you giving us wisdom to like almost 2,000 people live. Uh, folks, Secretary's smiling here. Um, this is all made possible by the guy who's going to get the next question. He co-founded this app, which we believe here at Politics and Media 101, the power of social audio uh, is immense and it can begin to heal some of the divides because we have somebody like yourself who worked in Democratic administrations. Absolutely. Republicans. And, and it's just beautiful. I want to go to Paul Davison uh, for the next question here. Paul, over to you. Thank you, Justin. And thank you so much for all that you do to host these discussions and to the Politics and Media 101 Club. It's um, I'm in here all the time, and you always have such important and high-quality conversations. So thank you to you and, and to the whole team. Um, Secretary Panetta, thank you for your long history of, of public service. I mean, we're just so immensely grateful to have you here on Clubhouse. I, I, we, we always say we, we love this idea that um, public servants and, and elected officials and people running for office could have a way to speak directly to the citizens of the country. And so, so they can get the feedback and so they can learn from you and specifically with you, learn from your, your history of service and, and to help build trust in the government. And uh, I really enjoyed what you said earlier about not leading from a place of crisis, but, but about building trust. And that's such an important topic these days when you have um, uh, quite an, an erosion of trust in, in elected officials, right? You, you have political processes that are opaque to so many people. You have social media creating echo chambers and fake news and amplifying those things. Do you have any tactical advice to, to other public servants around what they can do to, to build that type of trust with the public? Yeah, you know, the, the simple answer to that question is to be honest. Be honest with yourself and be honest with others. Uh, I, I really believe, and I'm often asked, you know, how did I, how was I able to take over different departments and agencies and get them to work together? Um, you know, the first thing, frankly, is to have a set of goals. Whatever the hell you're doing, uh, don't just simply move stuff from the inbox to the outbox. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's called bureaucracy. Uh, and I think, I think if you're a leader or you're somebody who's in a position, uh, where you can influence something, just, you know, what, what are your goals? What do you want to achieve, uh, in whatever job you have? And I've always, I've always approached these jobs on the basis of what is it that I want to achieve so that when I leave these jobs, you know, I've had, I've had an impact. Uh, secondly, it's really important to, uh, to build a team. Uh, wherever you're at, frankly, uh, make sure that, uh, particularly if, if, you know, if you're a leader of any group, 
the ability to have a team support what you're trying to do and to work with them uh, is incredibly important uh, so that everybody feels like they're they're a part of, of an effort to try to get something done. Uh, thirdly, obviously, you need to, to develop a strategy. How do you get from point A to point B? And, you know, it's not a straight line. Uh, it's uh, it's sailing. You got to basically zigzag your way uh, towards a goal uh, and figure out, you know, where the barriers are going to be, who's going to oppose you, who's going to be, you know, a pain in the ass, who is going to be helpful and cooperative. Uh, try to understand the kind of, uh, of strategy you're going to need in order to have half a chance of getting your goals done. Uh, and then that important point I made at the beginning. You have to be honest with yourself. Uh, if you try to kid yourself as to who you are in terms of your strengths and weaknesses, uh, I, I think it won't take long for others to understand that you're not a genuine person. Uh, so, you know, regardless of, of where you come from, whether you, whatever your race or your color, or your creed, your background, you know, you have an identity. Uh, be proud of who you are. Don't try to be somebody else. Be who you are. And lastly, be honest with others. Uh, I think the ability to be honest with others, uh, to tell them when you, when you do the right things and tell them when you do the wrong things and have them do the same thing with you, uh, that's what builds trust, is the fact that you can have an honest relationship with people. And you can say to them, you know, what are the problems you're confronting? How the hell do I deal with these issues? What would you suggest? You know, what is your recommendation? Um, so that, you know, you're, you are really trying to work together to try to, uh, to confront these areas. Now, look, you move that into governing. And, you know, my, my history in the House was that as a Democratic member, I always worked very closely with my ranking member, uh, my Republican member. Uh, and, you know, I, I can remember I, I was on the Ag Committee at one point and I was involved with nutrition uh, nutrition uh, uh, programs. And, of course, that means the food stamp program. Nothing more controversial than the food stamp program, even in my day. Um, but um, my Republican ranking was a guy named Bill Emerson from Missouri. And uh, Bill was a good guy. And he was very interested in nutrition programs for the elderly, senior citizens. And I said to Bill, Bill, I'll do whatever the hell you want to do on senior programs. You tell me how you want to fashion it, we'll do it. All I ask in return is that you try to help me uh, when it comes to the food stamp authorization bill. Uh, and to his credit, he did exactly that. Uh, and so when I brought a food stamp bill to the floor, uh, I usually got bipartisan support for it as a result. Uh, and I did the same thing in the budget area. Uh, 
I had uh, I had some great ranking members on the budget committee uh, who worked with me on budget issues. And, I, you know, today, as you probably all know, neither Democrats or Republicans are very interested uh, in in budget discipline or fiscal responsibility. Uh, the budget process is largely broken. Uh, I don't think they've passed a budget resolution that really means anything in the last almost 15 or 20 years. And if you don't have a budget resolution that lays out the discipline for what your priorities are and where you can save money and, and how, you're, how much you're going to spend in different areas, then it all becomes a matter of passing, you know, continuing resolutions. That's what you wind up doing. And that's what Congress has been doing. Uh, when I was there, and this was during the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, uh, we actually sat down at Andrews Air Force Base. Republicans and Democrats sat down at Andrews Air Force Base for about two or three weeks negotiating a budget deal. And the essence of that deal, I mean, the Republicans basically said, uh, if the Democrats come up with $250 billion in savings in entitlement programs, we'll put $250 billion in tax increases on the table. I mean, that was a total package of $500 billion in deficit reduction. Uh, we did that. We sat at that table and negotiated and went through line items and ultimately agreed to a package. It was controversial. Uh, I think Newt Gingrich walked out on the deal at the last minute. But George Bush, to his credit, stood by it. And, and the Republicans that worked on it stood by it. And we passed the largest deficit reduction package uh, in history at that point. Uh, and Bill Clinton actually followed that up when I was his OMB director with a similar package. And together, those packages, plus other deals, resulted in a balanced federal budget. You guys, you guys don't remember that. Used to, we used to have a balanced federal budget and a surplus. <laughs> and, uh, and that all went to hell real fast. Well, in order to get there, it required that you sit in a room, that you talk with one another, that you work through the issues, but that you all work together to try to find consensus. And we were able to do that. Uh, and the country was better off because of what we did. Somehow we have got to get back to those elements I just described uh, as central to, to the, the relationship. Look, this is about human relations. Democracy is about human relations. If you're in, if you're engaged with, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, is hateful uh, and doesn't like to do anything, uh, it makes it difficult. But if you can find their soft spot by listening to them and making them part of the process, then they'll feel like they're part of something, even though they may not win. They're part of something. We've got to we've got to get back to that. And frankly, both parties have to stress that this is not just about the issue of gaining power. 
Everybody, you know, focuses on that election. How do we gain power? I understand that drive. But you know what? That's the American people care a hell of a lot more about whether you're solving problems and not just saving your ass. And so we have got to get back to realizing that governing can be good politics as well. Well, I think that sounds like really good advice for public servants and for people building audio apps and for everyone else. So thank you so much, Secretary Panetta. Again, it means so much for us to be able to be in the room with you today and to have this discussion. And, and thank you so much again, Justin, for help, for hosting this. Thank you, Paul. We have time for one last question. I promised that I would get Duke in here. Uh, Duke, good sir, you are going to bring up the rear with the Honorable Secretary, former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. Mr. Panetta, thank you so much for being here. Uh, in the last hour and a half, the amazing part of Clubhouse is you've answered 20 of my 25 questions that I wrote down. And it's just shocking the breath that you're able to give to us in this room. You spoke of your parents and your upbringing inspiring you to join public service. And you've been open about your faith throughout your career. And as a Catholic myself, I have to wonder, how has that informed you and helped you navigate all the roles that you have served and all the difficult decisions you've had to make to defend our country? Well, you know, I, I, my, uh, I'm a graduate of Santa Clara University. Uh, and this was, this was the days that Santa Clara where there actually were a hell of a lot of Jesuits on campus. <laughs> you don't, you know, these days, if you go to a Jesuit university, you don't see that many Jesuits around anymore. But uh, in my day, and it, it frankly was an all men's school at the time at Santa Clara, uh, there were a lot of Jesuits and they taught us uh, in a number of classes. But fundamental to that teaching by the, by the Jesuits was a sense of conscience about what's right and wrong, uh, which is absolutely essential. I mean, I, I look at the politics of today and the kind of things that are being said about lies and things that are going on that are just, they're just wrong. They aren't the facts. They're not the truth. And you would think that morally that would bother people to say what just is not true. And, you know, I think, I think the Jesuits taught me that, you know, you need to have a sense of right and wrong. And uh, I can remember when I, when I first went to work for, it was Tom Kekel. I, I don't know if there's anybody in your audience that remembers Tom Kekel, but he was a, a great senator, Republican senator from California. And I got out of the Army, uh, and um, just quick, quick, quick story. Uh, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the son of immigrants. I, I get out of the Army. Uh, I haven't really done much in politics. But I, I decided to write a guy named Joe Califano, who's still around. Uh, Joe Califano was uh, an aide to Lyndon Johnson. And I wrote him not because I knew him, but because his last name was Califano. Uh, and I said to him, I said, you know, I said, I, I, uh, I really appreciate the fact that, uh, you, you know, you're working 
uh, in the White House. That's really a position of honor. I would like to come back to Washington and try to find a job. And and I'll be damned if he didn't set up some appointments and I got a chance to come back to Washington. Uh, and I ultimately got this job with uh, with Senator Kekel. And Kekel brought in those days, there were two legislative assistants. You can imagine <laughs> there was one legislative assistant for domestic affairs, and there was another legislative assistant for uh, foreign affairs and national security. Today, as most of you know, senators have, you know, at least eight or nine or more uh, aides of one kind or another. So anyway, this was, was the days when there were two legislative assistants and Kinkle brought us into his office and he said, you know, I, you're going to be tempted a great deal in this town. Uh, you know, lobbyists are going to try to take you out to lunch, give you gifts to try to get to me. And I want you to remember one thing, that we are here to serve the interests of the American people and the people of California. And remember one, one other thing. When you get up in the morning, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. And I never forgot that because what, what, he, what he was saying was that in the end, you have to protect your integrity. And I always felt that it was important, no matter what the temptation was, no matter, you know, and, and look, you, you, you go through politics, uh, somebody is always going to come up with a crazy idea that is wrong. And you have to have the guts to stand up and say, you know, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I've had to do that with presidents. But you need to have that voice in the room that is willing to say that. And frankly, presidents should want that so that you're at least getting the best advice you can before you have to make a decision. And look, it's not easy. I mean, we all know, you know, in politics, uh, you know, it's easy to cut corners. It's easy to do something that may be, you know, uh, not the right thing to do in order to, to gain some additional power. But, you know, mark my word, you pay a price for that. You pay a price for that. And so I, I really think that this idea of being honest, being truthful with one another, agreeing as to what the truth is. Look, you don't have to agree as to what what the solution is. We all have different ideas about how to solve problems. But damn it, you can agree on the facts of the problem. You know, if we have a healthcare problem, there are facts to back that up. If we have an infrastructure problem, there are facts to back that up. If we have an immigration problem, there are facts to back that up. And if you can at least agree on the facts of the problem, then, yeah, you can have a discussion about what's the best way to approach this. And there'll be differences. That's okay. I don't have any problem with that. God, our forefathers had all kinds of problems in terms of uh, their approaches to dealing with issues. But, but to have that, that discussion and the ability to listen to one another, to have that dialogue, uh, and then to agree on what was, what's the right approach, I mean, I think that is what leadership is all about. Uh, and I have to say that, you know, ha having had a, a Jesuit education, uh, having carried around a rosary for most of my life, uh, 
uh, that those things have always helped me uh, when it uh, when the, when the going gets tough. That's a truly inspiring answer, Mr. Panetta. Thank you. Thank you. What a what a wonderful question to end on. And um, normally, I give this winding recap of what the discussion was. Not going to do that today. Um, but Secretary Panetta, uh, you have thousands of people listening. Um, from all over the world. But I want to ask you to give us your parting thoughts on, it could be anything, democracy, the future, anything you want. Um, it could be optimistic, it could be pessimistic, or it could be somewhere in between. What do you want to leave the Clubhouse audience today that you just spoke with? Um, what final thoughts do you want to give us, sir? Well, look, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you both for doing this. And uh, thank you for, uh, you know, being willing to really develop that kind of civil discourse that is so absent from the politics we're seeing uh, every day in Washington. So uh, I really I really think it's important to mine that kind of attitude that's out there. I really believe that most Americans really want the right thing for their country. You know, you know, they, they see the politics, they see the division, they see the polarization, but deep down, they want the right thing for their country. Uh, and I believe that. And I think we're all worried right now because our democracy is fragile. Look, if if our democracy is not functioning in order to deal with the problems facing our democracy, then it is failing. It's failing. And we will be a weaker country. Uh, and our democracy will be a hell of a lot more vulnerable to crazies out there who basically say, why are you screwing around with trying to work through our democratic institutions? Let me give you a better idea. You know, we just need to have somebody who does our thinking for us. I mean, that's what autocrats do in other parts of the world. And that's the danger we faced in this country, is that somehow, why bother with the system that involves so much dialogue, so much discussion, so much, you know, willingness to listen and to understand. But excuse me. That's what democracy is all about. So, you know, I, I, I think we should be worried. We should be worried about the dangers of polarization uh, and the dangers of gridlock uh, and what it could do to our democracy. But I also want to say to all of you that I believe in American leadership. Uh, this country has a long history. We've been through a hell of a lot, whether it's a civil war or two world wars, uh, whether it's recessions or depressions or natural disasters. We've seen it all. And somehow the right leadership has always come to the forefront to be able to get us through and make us a stronger country. And I believe that because, as I said, I think the real strength of this country is not in Washington. The real strength of this country is in the American people. 
their spirit, their resilience, their common sense, their willingness to try to work hard to try to protect their country. And, and I've seen that in the men and women in uniform that serve this country. As Secretary of Defense, I saw young men and women who were willing to go into battle, put their lives on the line in order to protect our democracy, to fight and to die for our democracy. And hell, if there are young people willing, who have the courage and are willing to do that, then should it be so tough for elected leaders to use a little bit of that same courage to do what's right for the country? And that's the question I think we all have to focus on. Because in the end, I think if we can all have that courage, we the people, then I think ultimately, no matter what our challenges are, I think ultimately our way of life and our democracy will survive. Beautiful. Thank you, Secretary uh, Panetta. Thank you okay, very much guys. for your time. Great. Good to talk with you and uh, keep punching. Yes, and, and we'll hopefully have you back on a panel with a bunch of people um, to fill us with some more hope and patriotism. Uh, but thank you very much, Secretary. Okay. Good luck. Well, that is all we have for you today. But again, if you like what you hear, please visit our website, pm101.club, where you can find all of our episodes for free. We have almost 100 on the way. You can also find information about how to join us live almost every day of the week. We have a schedule including national journalists, members of Congress, experts, leaders, all coming here so you can hear from them directly in their own words on issues that are important to you. Again, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. This has been Politics and Media 101. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. Yeah.